Take our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, our last portion of Scripture in this chapter. We'll study together. Thank you for encouraging each other's hearts by way of worship this morning in song and preparing our hearts. That's what Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 teaches us. We all participate. That's what biblical worship is. It's not performers on stage with people who just sit and watch and be entertained. Uh, everyone collectively joins in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, instructing one another in the Word of God as we sing and preparing our hearts for the public preaching of God's Word. So thank you for doing that uh, this morning. Uh, again, guests, Gordon, would you stand real quickly? Gordon's going to be, if you're a guest this morning, out the doors to the left to offer you a beverage, a warm handshake, answer any questions that you have you may have about grace if you're here as a guest. You can give the little guest card that you're filling out or have filled out uh, to him. Give it to an usher or a pastor. You can put it in the pocket of the chair in front of you uh, before you leave. So we promise to pray for you, let you know a little bit about our church. Uh, we're just glad, uh, super glad that you're here. And uh, when I mentioned those fellowships, those golf outings that I mentioned before, everything we do here is really for Great Commission purposes and if you're here this morning, you'd just like to find out more about grace and what our purposes are, come. Enjoy the fellowship. You don't have to bring a friend. You don't have to come with a, someone who's studying the Bible with you. You can just come and continue to learn uh, who we are and um, what the purpose of our fellowship uh, is together. Um, let's read together the few verses that we're going to examine and preach and apply, beginning in verse 13. Verse 13, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. For those of you who are guests or are newer to the Lord, this is part of the Bible that's called wisdom literature. These are generally accepted truths and principles that we can apply to our lives in very practical ways. But this is wisdom literature. In relationship to popularity and position, this is what Solomon, the wise one, has to say. In relationship to the transient nature of position and popularity a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction for he has come this would be the poor yet wise lad he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom often wondered if Solomon was thinking of Joseph when he wrote that. Verse 15, I have seen all the living under the sun throng to be the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before him, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after the wind. In chapter 4, we've been on a search to know where we find comfort amidst oppression. And we've studied together how do we find balanced rest in this life of imbalanced competition and rivalry. Last week, we I trust clearly and compassionately relayed to you the need for biblical companionship and, 
And that when we're isolated, and isolation is reigning in our lives, whether personally in our homes, domestically, or here ecclesiastically, that that's certainly uh, not the will of God, that biblical companionship is so necessary for our lives. And we talked through those wisdom principles last week. And uh, today we'd like to conclude this chapter by discussing the reality of permanence, or should I say the reality of impermanence, in relationship to popularity and position. We want to look at the transient nature of both. Solomon seems to say here that position and popularity are like the wind too. Isn't that the way he concludes? For this too is vanity and striving after the wind. So he wants us, by his wisdom here, given to him by the Holy Spirit, to make sure that we're not maintaining unrealistic expectations regarding position or popularity. Unrealistic expectations regarding either. Walter Kaiser in his commentary on this book says this, how fleeting and altogether temporary is the popularity accorded to men. What does it matter if a man ever has royal power? In one case, the old king, although born to the throne, becomes foolish senile and unable to discern that his days of ruling are over in another situation a young but poor wise man may like joseph rise from prison to the throne such are the constant ups and downs of life for although the young man was welcomed at first he too will no doubt share his predecessor's fate those who come later will not be pleased with him either how fickle are people today? Today's heroes are tomorrow's bums. While rulers tremble and diligently seek to make their own thrones secure, the people clamor for change and revolution. Now how can the plan of God encompass the likes of that? When the unwise gain power and popularity as individuals, they at times tolerate foolishness for a long period of time rather than Choose the wisdom that comes from the less attractive or less powerful people in their cultures. It has been said that people love what they're used to. Popularity comes and goes, position comes and goes, and that's really never changed. And by the way, that's never going to change. The German philosopher Hegel, I was reading some time ago, and I wrote this quote down in my notes to be used at a later sermon, and today was appropriate. He says, we learn from history simply that we do not learn from history. What Solomon says here is exactly the same in his own words. Think about this. The longest reigning prime minister of Canada was 21 years. The same with England. The longest reigning monarch of England is still reigning, right? In 2015, she passed up her great-great-grandmother, and Queen Elizabeth II has now been on the throne for 65 years. The empire of China, like 5,000-year-old empire, 67 dynasties, 446 emperors, and the longest one that ever reigned was just simply 61 years. The longest sitting president in the United States, you know very well, right? 12 years and one month, I believe. 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the longest sitting king of Israel, the southern king, Manasseh, was 43 years. The longest reigning sultan of the Ottoman Empire was Suleiman the Significant, and he reigned for just 46 years. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar still holds the scoring record in the NBA. That's only been 30 years. Emmett Smith still holds the rushing record in the National Football League, and that's only been 15 years. What about all the CEOs of all the Fortune 500 companies like ever? Cisco's John Chambers was the longest-seated CEO of a Fortune 500 company. That was for 20 years. The average reign, if you will, of a company, of a CEO of a company is 6.9 years. So, you take all those numbers together, and I'm sure there's a lot of other numbers that you can come up with, and average them out, it's 39 years. The average legacy of a man is about one generation. Oliver Cromwell, who took the British throne away from Charles I and established the Commonwealth, said to a friend right after he took control, do not trust the cheering of the people, for those persons would shout as much if you and I were to be hanged. Cromwell understood crowd psychology, didn't he? So remember the happened in chapter 2? What even you establish as a righteous person can be undone the night after your death by another person. Position and popularity is short-lived. So Solomon says what? And we already rehearsed multiple times in this book. Be merry. Enjoy life. Never forget doing the will of God. Keep the commandments of God. Do what God's called you to do with the people of God while you have breath to breathe and live his will with joy. Some of you might be asking, especially if you're a newer believer, so is my life useless? And I would say, absolutely not. You have great value as one of God's creations. What if the Lord, you might ask, would be pleased to give me a measure of position and popularity? Some of you might ask, what if he doesn't? Regardless, there's wisdom in this passage and in all of the scripture that we need to embrace. Warren Wearsby wisely reminds us that even the moral of the story in our text is wealth and position are no guarantee to success. And poverty and seeming failure are no barriers to achievement. Anyone can at any time, regardless of your current state in life, rise or fall and such is the nature of our fallen world. But the key is, according to the end of our book that we've already looked at many times, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, the end of the whole matter is what? Fear God and keep his commandments. Obey him and obey him with the people of God. Certainly, we know from Solomon's life that there's nothing wrong with wealth. God never decried Solomon's riches. We know there's nothing wrong with achievement or any type of good success. Even Solomon says, hey, look, if you're really good at what you do, whether it be your profession, your scholastic abilities, your athletic abilities, 
whatever it is you're good at. He says, do it with all your might. Don't miss out on the opportunity to make the best of how God created you today. Right? Go, go, go. But we never do that at the expense of living his word personally and then collectively with the family of God. Going this life in position and popularity alone and without the eternal wisdom and purpose of God is actually quite pointless for the Christian. Can I say that again? No one, I don't know why I asked that question. People, no one's going to tell me no. Maybe you would, I don't know. Going this life, enjoying position and popularity alone and without the eternal wisdom and purpose of God is quite pointless for the Christian. Your life together with other lives coupled with eternal purpose is really true legacy. God has simply not called one person, let alone a believer, to singularly be great for God. John the Baptist even knew this. God in his providence had put him in a pretty high position, esteemed by God, not by men. But even in that high position that God gave him, he said what? He must increase and I must decrease. I've never gone home in 28 years of marriage this coming Saturday and asked my wife, sweetheart, are you going to be great someday? <laughs> I've never asked her, sweetheart, what global legacy are you going to leave for the Lord? She's never come home in almost three decades of marriage and said, Tim, do you want to be great? Why don't you want to be great? What's your legacy going to be throughout all the earth? <laughs> Solomon's wisdom that we're going to cover today would say that would be silly at best. But I will say, in Christ, we not me, can do eternally great things. In Christ, we, not me, we, not I, we, not individually you, together can do great things for Christ. So I don't leave my legacy. You don't leave yours. We leave ours especially in our dispensation of grace, the age of the church. You don't see one individual that leaves a legacy without others using his own greatness and purpose and position and popularity to exalt even his Savior and end up seeing that come out to much fruit at all. The Apostle Paul even says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 at the end of the chapter that even when the Lord Jesus returns and all the saints are gathering in the company of his presence, he looks around and he sees the saints of Thessalonica and he says, you are my crown and joy at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul never, even with the high position and Familiarity that God gave him among the people of God. Even he himself saw himself as the chiefest of sinners 
and very much with the John the Baptist mindset, always saw himself of little to no significance without the family of God. Even Ronald Reagan said there's no limit to the amount of good that you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. Even a national leader who said that he had a relationship with Christ understood that even being the most powerful man in the world appointed for as a two-term president would look around and say, I am only as great as the people that God's put around me and only as great as the people that I serve in this nation. They get the credit. Paul proclaims himself to be nothing but clay, 2, Timothy, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that is to be molded in our divine potter's hands. Paul would say, like we've already said, it's never about me but we. You know, we not only see this individually with people inside the local church, like here at Grace Church of Menor. The Apostle Paul tells us that even like-minded local churches in his culture at that time understood it wasn't the individual we of that church that made them great over any other church. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Study that on your own time if you would. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I'd ask you to examine those verses as well. Multiple other passages in the New Testament that tell us that even like-minded churches, there should be no one super church. There should be no one singular powerful church. God can use churches individually to do great things for him. But even at that, it should not be at the expense of interdependence with other like-minded churches to exalt Christ together and to propagate his gospel. Even the most elementary, simple reading of Scripture teaches the Christian heart that even Grace Church as an entity should not go this alone without other churches. If I'm influential to my children, I'm only as influential as you help me as a church family maintenance a spirit-filled testimony in my own home. I can't be spiritually great without the saints the Lord has put right around me. And the same for you. The same for my wife. The same for my children. We're as only spiritually influential as you help us to be. And we help you to be. For Christ's sake, in this local church. So the Lord doesn't call one person to be individually great, like ever, by themselves. Like ever. You can't find it at the expense of the we of God's people. Can't find it in the Bible. You can't even find it in Christian history. But you can find people that thought they could be great at the expense of the people that God had put around them. I think Cain tried that pretty early in the scriptures, don't you? Later on, we see the testimony of Achan 
Achan thought he could be a self-promoter and a self-achiever and go it alone. Joshua 7 tells us that was a miserable failure. Demas thought he could go it alone and still be a productive member of God's local church society, and that didn't work out well. Alexander the coppersmith in the New Testament thought the same thing. Diotrephes, the apostle John said, he tried to go it alone, always loving to have the preeminence, and he isolated himself away from the people of God while he tried to dwell among the people of God, and John says that doesn't work. Even one of the folks in Jesus' band of 12 tried to do the same thing, right? And our hearts ache over the end of the life of Judas, who never truly understood the purpose and eternal nature of spiritual family, even though he walked three and a half years side by side with the king of kings. It was still about me and not we for him. He wanted the notoriety. He wanted the popularity. He lived for those things as these other Bible characters did and it just doesn't work. Even godly folks have tried this, only be convicted of the spirit I think Paul and John Mark went through a little bit of this. They saw how to do ministry in a particular way, and if they didn't agree with one another, they had to part from one another. But being convicted about that, we find them later coming back and being very useful to the ministry, in the ministry with one another. I don't want to leave a legacy on this earth as Tim Potter. It would be a miserable failure if anyone ever preached my funeral and said this was Tim Potter's legacy. If that was spoken apart from what we were able to do together. I don't want to be great and neither should you. Never me apart from we. Pastors, local church leaders, institutional Christian leaders, at times, I think unwittingly, sought to do something great for Jesus. Nothing wrong with the motivation to want to do something great for our Savior. But my friends, regardless of local church or parachurch organization, any one person or institution that wants to do something great at the expense of other biblical relationships will in the end of the day do nothing great for Christ. Or more appropriately, very little great for Jesus Christ. What has been the result of our lifetime. Probably two and a half generations of people sitting here this morning. What has been the result of pastors or parachurch organizations seeking to be exclusively or individually great for Jesus and to do things? And again, I think a lot of them did it unwittingly. Right? But the Bible has a method behind the motive of wanting to do great things for Jesus Christ. And 
what happens when we have the motive right but the methodology wrong? I read a particular part of an article this week written by a Christian magazine that had done some research. I sent a copy of what I had read to two of our pastors. And this author, through their research, says, according to a recent LifeWay research study, in the next seven years, 55,000 churches in the United States will close their doors. And the number of those who attend church on the weekend in the United States will drop from 17 to 14%. Only 20% of churches in the U.S. are growing, and only 1% are growing by reaching lost people. So 95% of the church growth we celebrate merely shuffles existing Christians around. Don't you think these two problems, believers who don't know how to effectively disciple others in a gradually shrinking church in the West, have to relate in some way. He goes on to say, yet very few pastors and church leaders see raising up disciple-making leaders as their primary objective. We measure success by size. In so doing, however, we neglect the one thing that can propel the church forward into the next generation and to the ends of the earth, spirit-filled, disciple-making disciples. Amen. It's we, not me. It's us, not you. And it's in this place that all these eternal glorious things happen because this is the place, the local church, in which the Lord Jesus Christ gave his final marching orders. And his final orders must be our first command. Together. Together. I've always told you, if you gave me a half a million dollars and a couple creative ideas, I think we could get about 10,000 people a month attending Grace Church of Mentor. It's not rocket science to take some money, a couple creative marketing ideas with some business ingenuity and get people to come to church. It's happening all over the world. That's not rocket science. The people involved in those ministries are busy, but they're not healthy. Doing Christ's last words as our first command. That's the blood, sweat, and tears of eternal purpose. And doing it together is another measure of human inability, but God's ability that we need to know because the next generation here and beyond depends on how well we know that reality. I really believe, I mean, folks, this is like the fifth author in as many months that I've read that has given the same statistic. I mean, if 95% of American evangelicals have never won someone to Jesus Christ in their lifetime, I, I would say that there's, like, that includes pastors. That includes leaders of churches. I mean, like, outside their home, right? Like, outside the Sunday school classroom, like, outside the church, outside their home. Like, in their community, 95% of spiritual leaders, local church leaders, and members have never seen a friend in town come to know Christ as their Savior. 95%. 
I would say that's stage four cancer. I wouldn't even say that's pre-diagnosis abdominal pain or heart pain. 55,000 churches are closing in the next seven years. But I will say, by Solomon's wisdom here, it's because our motivation to do things for Christ was not checked by our methodology. And many people stepped out alone to be great, and many churches and parachurch organizations have done the same at the expense of interdependent, Bible-based relationships with other like-minded people. And it looked like we were seeking to have our niche in the market of Christendom. It looked like, as we look back over our shoulders now, that we were seeking notoriety, popularity. No one can do it like they can do it. And yet, what we were going to conference about and what we were going to learn about at these places that seemed to know and to do it so well was, was not disciple making, was not great commission living. So the eternal organic, spiritual, reproductive, and eternal responsibility granted to us is done together. We do it together. Solomon discusses the danger and the grievous futility of living life in isolation. Remember the first part of chapter 4? Oppressors oppress and they relegate themselves and the ones they afflict to a life of isolation and fear. Unbalanced competitors go it alone, ostracizing others away from them while they enjoy their greed and relative obscurity. And even we found out last week that we can self-inflict isolation upon ourselves in our own homes and in our local church if we don't grasp the wisdom principles on how to live an intentional, balanced life with the people of God in his local church for eternal purpose. I have a friend of mine. He's always going to be a friend of mine. I'll make that qualification. For the last 30 years of his life, he's lived in relative obscurity, out street evangelizing and winning people to Jesus Christ, so he says. And those people have nowhere to go to church because he himself refuses to settle down at a local church to send those people to a place where they can be shepherded and discipled. I saw him again this last week. And the process continues. Why are you doing what you're doing? He says, because it's what God's called me to do. And I said, can you find any scriptural basis for what you say God's called me to do? And he says, no, but I know this is what God wants me to do. You just can't simply live life like that. 
That doesn't make any Bible common sense like whatsoever. You never do me at the expense of we. You can't say I'm going to call of God to go do something if you can't back it up with the content of his word. God didn't call him to do that. Someone is. I'm not going to identify who, but someone is. But I'll guarantee you it's not God compelling him with that methodology because it's about him. He gets to choose where he pops around. He gets to choose who he witnesses to. He gets to choose when. He gets to say, I'll shepherd him apart from a local church. He gets, he gets, he gets. Well, you just don't see that in the Bible. So we departed from one another with our usual hug. Our statements that we love each other but that we will forever be in disagreement with each other. We never get to do me at the expense of we, the local church. Self-promoting ideologies and practices to gain popularity and notoriety and position still abound. Anything done in the name of Christ aside from organic connection to his local church can prove and always does prove problematic in the life of the isolationist, intentional person, and at the expense of the successful function of the local church. Well, Solomon reminds us that there's no permanence to that position. There's no duration to the mere individual passion to succeed in any part of life, let alone local church Christian community. Anything done alone, even if it's virtuous, won't last and won't have a legacy. One author said it best regarding anything done for good but alone, and we've already stated this before, and I'll state it again. Today's hero is tomorrow's bum. We've discovered in chapters 1 through 3 in our study, everything created has an end, and at that, a brief Existence. So whatever mankind may know of us, it is most likely even more short-lived than we are. Whatever mankind may know of us, it's most likely more short-lived than we are. I was sitting recently in some stands watching a sporting event, and that's where I intentionally try to reach out and to, and to make friends. Uh, to get to know them, be their friend, whether they trust Jesus or not, and they know that. And, but I can be light there. And there were two teenagers that uh, we had known for about four years. And uh, we were up speaking to some other people in the stands, and they saw us as they walked in, and they walked up to us. They'd been in our home a handful of times. They know they're always welcome in our home. And they sat down. And uh, we talked. We got hungry, so I went out and bought him dinner. Brought it back to the stands because the game was long. And we ate together. And we talked. And we laughed together. We talked about spiritual things. I gave spiritual answers, I hope, to their spiritual questions. And, and um, as we were watching this event, all of a sudden, they watched someone else from Grace Church of Mentor walk into the event they did not know that I knew this person for years. 
And they said, oh my goodness, there's so-and-so. I love that guy. And I said, what do you love about him? And they had this long list of wonderful things to say about this guy. I was like, you know what? I agree. It's like, what? You agree? It's like, yeah. I've known him since he was 12. And he's every one of those things. And it's great, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's great. I said, well, he goes to my church. And the only thing that made him great is Jesus. See, I can talk easily about Jesus with these kids because they know we've been friends for five years. Oh, yep. I said, and he gets to live Jesus out in his life with us. And I thought, preparing this sermon, I thought, wow, that's a great example of me, not at the expense of we, and then what can we do together? to be eternally influential. You see, because when that guy and I die, right, we may be forgotten, but the legacy that we put together here won't be. It's like, oh, yeah. I know where that church is, and that's the church that preaches Jesus and really loves him and tries to see, get people to see him. I used to know a guy that went there. I, me. For the life of me, we watched so many games together, I can't remember his name. But my goodness, that church, that church, <laughs> I came to know Jesus through that group of people. I can't remember the member, but that's the message. I remember. My dad has been inducted into the Berkshire High School Sports Hall of Fame out in Jauga County. I'll never forget his speech at the night of his induction ceremony. He spoke of the relationship that he had with his teammates that he adored, some who had gone into eternity by then. He mentioned how some had even lasted in these relationships for over 50 years. He spoke of what they were able to accomplish together as a basketball team and on the track and field venue, he said, some went on to play Division I college sports, and, and my dad had, he went on to play basketball and run track at, at Kent State University. He mentioned that none of his athletic accomplishments could have ever been done by himself without his team, but then he said, even the accomplishments of our team will be forgotten, and they have been over time. But there's one person now in my life and he's given me a family and a church family that will last forever. Amen. And then he gave the gospel to all of his remaining living friends and fellow inductees and their families and spoke of how great his church was in which he was so proud. They may not remember you, and they will not remember me, but they will remember us if we do this together for Christ and his eternal purposes. No pursuit of notoriety, no pursuit of popularity, 
just Jesus must increase and we must decrease. Jesus said, upon myself I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And you know, they haven't. The enduring eternal legacy of the church of Jesus Christ is only as influential as he is through us. No one person in his family should seek to rise up and be great or be noticed, for he is the only one to be exalted in his family. So, how short-lived is man's position and popularity in general? Well, what happened on the night of our last general election in the United States? People immediately sought to depose a president that had been elected within the hour. That's exactly what Ecclesiastes 4, verses 13 to 16 say. They rise up, and immediately someone's there to take them away, and that's a natural process or natural rhythm of fallen human existence. So we can't get distracted by that. But we must be distracted unto God's eternal purpose together as a local church as we, the people, do his mission according to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So if you have any, as we close, any measure of notoriety and position in life, Solomon says, enjoy it while it lasts. (laughs) Right? Enjoy it while it lasts, but don't enjoy it alone. And if you're going to enjoy it with others, make sure you primarily enjoy it with people in your local church and share with them in the doing of eternal things in your local church. There's a neighborhood just outside Atlanta, Georgia that just celebrated the 35 career of their on-foot neighborhood postman. You see, for three decades, he stopped to help little ones who had fallen off their bikes. He helped new moms arriving home from the hospital carry their new little one to the home for the first time. He spent time with the junior hire who arrived home terrified to face their parents with their recently received horrible report card. He consoled a husband who also arrived quite reluctant to enter his home and tell his wife that he'd just lost his job. He took time to briefly celebrate a birthday at a home party. He dropped his own card off in the mail to a family that just lost a loved one, and he would do the same to celebrate a recent graduation of a child in that home or a student. The article went on to say that I recently read that a life touching other lives in this way is always worth remembering. And it is. But put that outside of a neighborhood outside of Atlanta and put that inside the local church as we entice one another to love and good deeds and we grow each other up in Jesus Christ and we grow each other deeper in the word together and the deeper that we go together in Christ the wider our influence will go in our community so we can understand Jesus's words Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and then come to glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's not even done by yourself. It's the we with an intentional purpose.
I know Solomon's wisdom may be hard to grasp. We live to make things permanent, but everything in our existence we know is temporary. So we always have to ask ourselves, what are we truly living for? We're told that eternity exists in our hearts and we try to be successful in knowing everything and bringing permanence to what we know, but we finally know we're temporary, finite, broken, even as God's image bears. And certainly we have value there, but knowing that and going life alone, even in the highest place of human achievement, is but temporary. But in Christ, together with his church, we can do great eternal things. So will you, in my one minute remaining, answer these questions? Will you root out from your heart, as I have needed to, the destructive thoughts that lead to us, lead us to pursue a selfish and individualistic pathway in life, even as within the context of our local church? Would you root out envy of others that's only leading you to a life of regret and isolation? Will you root out of your own heart bitterness towards someone or something else that's doing the same? Would you deal with the greed in your own heart pushing you to live a great life at the expense of biblical family and local church purpose? Is the gravity of your own theology apart from our family of God and its scriptural infrastructure pulling you away from the orbit of your local church? There still remain some who will pound the table that their theology to do great things for God apart from their local church is possible and it's not even probable. There will be no legacy that you leave. Is anything pulling you away from others in your own home, let alone your own church? If you're not growing closer, God hasn't created anything or anyone to be stagnant and exist for long. If you're not growing closer, then you're most likely slipping away from the eternal purpose God has for you to exclusively enjoy what he's asked his local church to enjoy together. And while you seek to be popular and you seek to be great, you may be missing out on a buffet of spiritual nourishment and blessing centered around eternal purpose. Popularity and notoriety comes and goes. That's never going to change. But there's another reality that's never going to change. What we get to do together and growing each other deeper in the word and being light for the gospel in our own community and connected interdependently with other like-minded churches throughout our state and throughout our land and throughout our world, we can do eternally what God's asked us to do. And Jesus will be great. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We realize from this text that anything that pulls us away from we and focuses on me or I has to be examined. Anything that makes us individuals existing apart from the family, domestically or local church-wise. I understand, Lord, that many of us have experienced a 
moving away from the preaching of God's word and a biblical philosophy in, in our local churches. And we've got to find churches that have a biblical philosophy and hold on to it with a firm grip. I understand that happens, Lord, in your will. But now that we're all here, help us to always pursue the we of our purpose and not merely the me of our purpose. May Jesus increase as we decrease in our personal lives and in our influence as a church, in our community, in Christ's name. Amen.